Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by Clint Smith, a guest I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Our guest today is Clint Smith. You might know Clint from any number of places. He's a regular on the podcast Pod Save the People. He's a contributor to The New Yorker, among other places. He's a Harvard doctoral candidate whose research interests include mass incarceration, the sociology of race and racism, and the history of U.S. inequality. A former National Poetry Slam champion, Clint wrote a book of poetry, Counting Dissent, that was a finalist for an NAACP Image Award. He's widely followed on Twitter at Clint Smith the Third, Clint Smith I I I, and for the purposes of this podcast, he's a former Division One soccer player at Davidson and a huge Arsenal fan who has written occasionally on soccer, including on the recent World Cup for the New Yorker. Clint, thanks for joining me. Appreciate you having me. It's uh, that was a long introduction. You do a lot of different things. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, I. I appreciate it. Yeah, got a uh, got my foot in a couple of different places. <laughs> so I want to start saying you're from New Orleans and you're a relatively young guy. How did your soccer story begin? Yeah, so I'm born and raised in New Orleans, uh, and and it's fascinating actually. So I, I played soccer my entire life. Kind of ended up by accident. So my mom, nobody in my family had really played soccer before, and uh, my mom meant to sign me up for for the football league and missed the registration deadline. And someone at her job was like, oh, well, you should just sign him up for, for soccer and he can you know, sign up for football next year. And she was like, sign him up for soccer. Nobody in my family plays soccer. Like, I, <laughs> But, they, you know, I was five or six years old and they needed something to keep me busy. And so they signed me up for the local soccer league and, uh, and it was over from there. I mean, I, I played uh, multiple sports my whole life. I, I played soccer, baseball, basketball, football for a second and then uh you know one kickoff return where i got schmollocked just uh <laughs> ended ended that for me and um but uh ran track and cross country and did all these different things but uh but i just fell in love with the game i i, I became obsessed as, as i think so many of us do and um i i had uh i bought a small must have been maybe like 14 inch tv that I begged my parents to set up in my room and I would watch uh, IX training videos <laughs> and, and do sort of try to do the IX uh, Cruyff drills in my, uh, you know, in my room, much to the chagrin of, of my father who would often come in and have to tell me the, to be quiet because I was making too much noise. And uh, yeah, it, and it was fascinating, I think, also as a, as a social phenomenon because I went to public school in New Orleans my whole life. Um, but people... Black people in in the South uh, did not play, or didn't, especially when I was growing up. I think it's beginning to change now, but didn't play soccer, uh, at, especially at the club level uh, and at the tribal club level, uh, in in any sort of uh, large large fashion. So, so I was the only one of, often the only or one of the only uh, people of color on my on my soccer team, and so it was fascinating, sort of moving between these two spaces as a kid. Uh, between you know a public school in New Orleans and a and a travel soccer team with kids largely from the suburbs in New Orleans, and sort of having to navigate those those different um, social circles in in ways that I can look back now look back on now and sort of assign 
uh, sort of historical or sociological language to it and some of the things that I was experiencing and the things that I was feeling and the sort of cognitive dissonance that I often experienced. Um, but, but I didn't necessarily have the language to understand it at that point. And, uh, and I, so I played, but I played my whole life. I loved the game. Uh, I had a dream of, of, of going pro. I was like, I'm going to go play for Arsenal. I got a Thierry on jersey when I was uh, 10 years old for my mom who went to, to an event in uh, London for work and then came back. And, and it's funny because she asked the cat, my, my mom, again, didn't know much about soccer. Uh, and, and she asked the cabbie in North London, she was like, who's the who's the soccer team for London? I want to get my son a jersey, uh, which which obviously is an innocent question and one that would make sense in a U.S. sports context. But uh, but she the the cab the cabbie laughed and was like, "There's only one team in London, man," and uh, and he got told her to get an Arsenal jersey, uh, and and she did, and she brought it back, and uh, I think she saw a photo a photo in the shop of a, a guy who looked. Um, relatively like me and that was um, Henri and so she she bought that and brought it back and and I obsessed over him and his career and and thus Arsenal and uh, and yeah I did not end up going pro uh, much to uh, even though I should have should have anticipated that but uh, I I ended up getting a soccer scholarship to Davidson College in North Carolina and uh, and I ended up there in large part because Hurricane Katrina was my senior year of high school Mm-hmm. And I ended up in Houston, Texas, and we were on my aunt and uncle's couch and watching CNN, you know, watching the neighborhood I grew up in under eight, nine, ten feet of water. And I was getting recruited by a number of different schools, but and Davidson was one of them, but it wasn't, I didn't know much about it. It wasn't, it wasn't at the top of my list, but the coach, Matt Spear, called me and he said, uh, I know you're going through a lot right now, and we were wondering if we could move your official visit up. Uh, and, you know, have you come here, maybe serve as a, as a distraction from what you're experiencing. And uh, and I jumped at the opportunity. I mean, I think I was a 17-year-old kid just kind of trapped in this endless cycle of despair watching watching the news and watching my hometown underwater. And uh, I ended up going to Davidson that weekend, had an incredible time, uh, fell in love with the school, with the, with the team, and committed on the spot. And uh, and I, I my college soccer experience was, uh, was not as, uh, as successful, so to speak, as, as I would have liked it to be. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I accomplished the dream of, of being a Division One soccer player, but uh, I actually didn't play a lot, and and that was a fascinating thing for me to experience because I think I grew up in Louisiana, which is uh, not necessarily a hotbed of soccer talent, or hasn't always been historically. We certainly had good folks come out of there. Um, you know, most notably, I think um, Patrick Mullins, who, who mm-hmm. won the the Herman trophy twice and who I grew up playing with. And, uh, but, but, you know, as compared to New York or California, we are, uh, not, not top tier necessarily. But, uh, and so I, I, you know, I was all state, all Metro, all city in, uh, in high school. And then I got to started playing D one and, uh, and it, it was, you know, playing against UVA and UNC and Wake Forest and a lot of these ACC teams who were near us, um, was sort of rude awakening, into uh, the sort of larger uh, soccer ecosystem in the U.S. But, but I also, you know, at the end of the day, I, I got to play the game I love with some of my best friends, and I got a scholarship to do that. And, and uh, it ended up being the best thing that could have happened because it forced me to figure out who I was off the soccer field, which I hadn't really spent a lot of time doing because my identity was so deeply interwoven into being like a clinical soccer player. Um, and that's when I found writing, and that's when I 
got a, a real passion for uh, literature and history. And, um, and it had I had a different type of soccer career uh, that hadn't pushed me to figure out who I was off the field, then uh, I imagine that my life would, would probably look a lot different now. It's a fascinating story. And I'm struck by sort of the happenstance about how you got connected to the sport. You know, recently on the podcast, we had on Eddie Johnson, uh, mm-hmm. who retired a couple of years ago, but had a good career. And, uh, you know, he's from uh, Benel, Florida. And the only reason he even got connected to soccer was because he saw a guy driving down the street one day when he was a kid advertising this soccer league. And he had yeah. no idea what it was, got into it. Um I mean, you mentioned how you were, you've written this too, that you're often the only black player on the field. Why don't, why don't we see more black soccer players in the United States? And in your opinion, what can be done about it? Yeah, well, I think, uh, I think hope, it, it seems like that's changing a bit. I mean, I think that if you look at the sort of the current crop of, of young guys who are coming up on the U.S. national team, um, I mean, I saw a team photo from the most recent camp. And I was, I, I kind of sat back in my chair for a second. Cause I was like, I could have never, I could have never imagined this when I was a kid. I mean, you got, you know, so many, uh, you know, 18, 19 year old, 20 year old kids who, um, who are playing, you know, uh, in, in Germany and in France and in England and, uh, here, you know, here in the MLS and doing incredible work and who are, who are largely going to become the, uh, you know, the, the center of, of this, this crop of guys coming up and, and I think of how, you know, when I was a kid and I looked at the U S national team, there was Kobe Jones, there was, uh, Eddie Pope, um, and, and, you know, a few and Ernie Stewart and, and others, but, but it wasn't, it felt like, uh, you know, few and far between, uh, and, and there, you know, if you were a black soccer player looking for an American soccer role model, uh, there weren't many people to choose from, and and I'm I'm so excited for you know young kids growing up now who get to look at the national team and what the national team is becoming and see such a plurality of, of backgrounds represented, uh, and it's just a really really exciting thing. And I think um, part of the reason that that's happening is because folks are recognizing that uh, it's necessary to create opportunities for for folks who who might not have the resources, folks who might not have traditionally been. Uh, engaged in the sport or had the sport as part of the sort of ecosystem or landscape of their communities um, to provide access for them to to, to participate at the highest level. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the biggest culprit for why more black folks, you know, especially when I was growing up and I think to some extent still now don't play is because of, of pay to play. And, and it's a, it's an expensive game when you, you know, playing club soccer and uh, in, and I think the, we didn't have, uh, the sort of academy system that is beginning to develop um, now when I was playing growing up. And I think that that the way that the cost structure um, that different clubs have and, and the ways in which they, they offer sort of scholarship or um, reduce prices and fees for, for certain folks, depending on the income of their parents is, uh, is really helpful. And I think that that's super helpful for getting um, more Latino folks engaged in the system and not in an informal way as has been the case for a long time, but sort of in a more formal formally structured way, I think, um, you know, and more people of color generally. And that's not to say clearly um, that that all people of color are are living in, in low socioeconomic conditions, but obviously given the history of this country, 
um, the the very real correlation between socioeconomic status and race is, is one that we have to be cognizant of and, and consider. And um, and I think that that's a, a huge reason. But it, but it's fascinating. You know, I think there are also geographical differences because I, you know, I, in, I grew up in Louisiana, which is a very specific social and geographic context. And I remember when I came to play at Davidson, one of my, my closest friends on the team was in Maryland. Uh, I played in Maryland. And I saw a photo of his youth team and and it was staggering how many black people were on his. I was just like, is this how it always was for you? And he's like, yeah, there were always this many black. I mean, and like, you know, people from the Caribbean, people from, you know, who are first generation West African immigrants, people who have been in, you know, whose parents have been in the country for generations. It was such a, it, it represented uh, such a remarkable plurality of the black experience in this one soccer team. Um, in a way that I had never seen before. So I think there's also something to be said for, for the way it looks different in different parts of the country. And, and I can't speak to every part of the country, but, um, but I, but I do know that if, if we make adjustments to pay to play, and if we just like provide more access in terms of, uh, you know, putting, putting uh, places for people to play informally. I know Atlanta has tried to do this mm. to, to varying degrees of success and other places throughout the U S um, but I really think that's it, right? Like, where can you just go put a ball down and play? And, and that's not going to, like, lock the fence or that's not going to make you schedule uh, a time to play. And, you know, in here in the D.C. area, there's been so much contention around uh, how gentrification has impacted so many of the playing areas in, in the area. And I think, you know, there are places where, um, you know, uh, immigrants and, and people of color have been playing informally and been playing pickup for for decades that are now uh, used for, you know, more formal recreational, you know, uh, district leagues and, and like company and corporate leagues that, um, and you have to reserve the time of, you know, certain mm-hmm. times on the field and things that, that run counter to have the culture of that space used to be. And so I think that these are real uh, questions that, that different cities and neighborhoods have to resolve. But, but I think, again, if you fix pay to play and if you uh, make the game more accessible, um, in, in these communities, and I think you'll see, you'll continue to see a big difference. A year and a half ago, you wrote a story for The New Yorker called Freddie Adu and the Children of the Beautiful Game. Uh, in that story, you recalled watching Adu during his first season in MLS and wanting him to become the first true U.S. global soccer superstar who was black. Actually, it would be the first U.S. global soccer superstar, period, on the men's side. Um mm. Maybe I hadn't thought about things in those terms as much uh, because it do came from another country to live in the U.S. Perhaps I'm not totally sure why I hadn't thought of it as much. But if it do had made it, do you think he would have especially resonated with the black community in the U.S. and helped create fans who weren't soccer fans before? I think he could have. I think, you know, I remember in that piece, um, I was having conversations with a bunch of my friends from high school. And I remember, I just remember so clearly how there was, even as popular as Eddie Pope was popular as even Kobe Jones was during his heyday. Like they they weren't, they weren't mainstays in the sort of cultural uh, and and sporting discourse for people who were not familiar with, uh, with soccer Mm -hmm. in the same way that Freddie Adu did when he burst onto the scene. Right. I mean, the whole, the entire story around Freddie was just like 14 years old. 
he came and he scored like within the first couple of weeks, he scored that uh, amazing goal against LA Galaxy, which was like, you know, sports center top 10. Um, you know, it was, it was their highlights everywhere. And this, and you, people were just like, this is a 14 year old phenom, number one pick in the draft. There was so much buzz about him that he became, uh, I mean, I think about the Jeremy Lin moment, right? And I think about, mm-hmm. uh, how special and how important that was for so many of my Asian American friends. Uh, who had never seen anyone who who looked like them become the face of of a sport, even if it was for a short amount of time, uh, and and I think you know the, the, obviously they're not not exactly parallel, but I think about the Freddie moment and how you know when I was I, I was often the only of my black friends, the only person who played soccer, and so you know my friends would come to my high school game and like they don't know anything about the game, but like as soon as I got the ball, they'd be like, go get him, Freddie. Freddie is due out here, blah, 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 blah. right? Because that was their sort of reference point. That was their framework, and and there's there was something. I think of what you know. I, I think of what could have been, um, and obviously you know he. There were so many different difficulties and so much pressure that was put on him that that I think made uh, success difficult from from the get go. Um, and and the, the expectations I can't even begin to fathom as a as a fourteen year old how you even begin to navigate that but but i do think there was a real moment in which he captured uh in the same way that like the the williams sisters capture continue to capture the uh the excitement of of a community of folks who who likely otherwise wouldn't be very engaged in tennis the same way that you know tiger woods comes back and and not even just in the black community in the entire uh you know sporting community in the industry of folks who watch golf how exciting that is because i think it's there's something about having someone who is not traditionally represented as the face of a sport mm-hmm. succeeding in that sport and the sort of the pride that it, uh, that it creates for, for folks and the excitement and the ways that it creates a different sort of investment. Because, because again, you know, the, the history of this country is one in which, um, you know, we have been very, black folks have been very purposefully excluded or prevented from participating. Um, in you know in so many different parts of, of the american project and and soccer is uh is one of those right in ways that are sometimes subtle and, and in ways that are sometimes more explicit but but i think that you know it is not it is not an accident that that soccer has been sort of made into the caricature of soccer in the united states is one that is you know orange slices and uh you know, and the suburbs, I think it is, it has been presented and, and maybe for some people, not, not all people, but for some people wanted to be kept as this thing that was apart from, uh, the other parts of the sporting industry that were, you know, dominated largely by, by people of color. Before I ask you another question about Arsenal, we need to clear something up here for anyone who follows you on Twitter. Your avatar has you in a Juventus jersey, not an Arsenal jersey. I know. What's the know. reasoning here? Oh, man. I know. It's uh, it's, it's funny because people, I think all the, the soccer folks who follow me are like very confused. They're like, why are you wearing a Juventus jersey if you're an Arsenal fan? And everybody else who follows me is like, I thought that you were a priest. Or I thought that you were wearing <laughs> a suit. Or I thought—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm struck by how many people, because of the black and white stripes, thought it was something uh, other than than what it was. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was—I you put it up about a year ago. It was just—I thought it was a good picture. Um, and uh, and I wear soccer jerseys all the time. I mean, I travel a lot for 
for work and um and soccer jerseys as we all know is just like these like really amazing often wrinkle-free shirts that uh that you just throw into a suitcase and, and toss it out and, and they're great to travel in they're great to wear they're um it's kind of my just like de- default setting is, is sweatpants and and soccer jerseys and so uh so i have i mean it, i don't have any particular allegiance to juventus i have about 25 jerseys that i wear um on different occasions but but arsenal has my heart and, and forever will i will have listeners know that you're wearing an ac milan jersey right now um uh, i know it's confusing for i'm, I'm a terrible uh, <laughs> so you wrote a story for the new yorker called the agony of being an arsenal fan and i'm wondering on the agony scale of things right now how are you feeling these days about arsenal i gotta tell you i am optimistic um i am uh, perpetually known as I, i'm on a group chat with a bunch of my my college friends from the from our soccer days and uh at every point, you know, Arsenal. There is at every every point for the past decade or so, Arsenal have had a a consistent run of wins, uh, an extended unbeaten streak that moves us into maybe like second or third place. And and I'm the person that's always like, this is it, this is the <laughs> moment we turn things around. The title is coming. Here we go. And like everybody has to be like, Clint, this literally happens every single year. Um, but uh, but I think that Liverpool game that just happened was really revealing in in the sort of character of the team in a way that that i hadn't seen before i think that's the game that in the past we would have uh we would have lost i think it's a a game that we would have uh our shoulders would have fallen and and we wouldn't have um we wouldn't have been able to come back and i I gotta tell you like lacazette has just been in in astounding form I, Mm i i was very skeptical and confused as to why emery was uh was so reticent to play he and Aubameyang together mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of the season, but but I think uh, I think those two on on their best days, not always, but on their best days, are uh, are re- work really well in tandem. And and I think it really also speaks to the strength of the French squad that that Lacazette like can't get into that team because he really, I mean, he's one of the top strikers in in the Premier League, if not all of Europe. Um, and uh, and he's you know he's just so potent um and, and i think the rest of the team is really uh finding their identity and there's just a different spirit there's a different spirit and and you know i i can't i became an arsenal fan uh when wenger was was in charge and i have nothing but respect for him and and i think that what he did in his tenure is is really, it's unprecedented you know other than than alex ferguson and i think uh it, there is something so special about his association with that club and with the team and, and what they, I'll always remember that 2000, 2003 season um, with the Invincibles and how we went undefeated. And, and, and it was, you know, even, even now it is, but it just brings a smile to my face to, to think about it. But, um, you know, we are, uh, it's a new day. And I think that <laughs> we did something fresh and we needed something new and, uh, and, and that's not uh, to discredit Wenger for everything that he did for the club, which is uh, an, an innumerable amount. Uh, but it is to say that uh, but I think we have someone who, who brings the best out of our players, and that's exciting to see. Well, I hope your optimism on Arsenal is rewarded. We'll have to wait and see. It's a long season ahead. Um, you mentioned that you're still in touch with guys from Davidson, which is a pretty small school. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Steph Curry was there when you were there. Did you have any interactions with him? 
Yeah, we were in the same class. So Steph is a good friend, and uh, and it's been pretty extraordinary to see the rise of his career. Um, I mean, I think you know we when we all showed up freshman year, we were just you know no no one could have expected him to become uh, who he was. Maybe he did, but you know he he grew. I think probably four inches when we were in school, hmm. four or five inches. He uh, and just you know he was always we always knew that he was a really really incredible shooter. Um, and that like, if, you know, if he, if you ran a screen and, and got him open, that he, uh, he would knock down those threes all day. But, but the way he's developed, like the, the fullness of his game and the way that he's developed as a player is, is really extraordinary. And, and above all, he's just, he's like a very genuinely good person. And, and I know that that can't be said for everybody in professional sports, but, but Steph is like really a good guy, a family man, um, super thoughtful uh and and i has not i think it's thoughtful and judicious about like how he uses his platform Mm -hmm. and the in ways that i think are we're we're beginning to see increasingly uh, i I think for a good reason in um across a lot of guys in in particularly the nba but not just the nba i think you know even in the nfl and people who are like recognizing the way that they can use their platform in a justice-oriented way and uh, and I think Steph, you know, in some ways more subtle uh, and discreet than than others, has has continued to use his platform in a way that uh, that is centering, uh, you know, empathy in a way that is centering uh, projects oriented toward justice. And um, and and he's got an adorable family. And so you know, I'm I'm super proud of him. We uh, whenever we're in the same city, we try to try to connect. And whenever he comes to DC, I try to go to his games. Or if I'm in the Bay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we're, we, I mean, we were a school of 1600 kids when we were there. And, uh, so we all, we all knew each other very well. Nice. Um, you live in Washington, DC does DC United or the women's team there them interest you? So yeah, I've lived in, in DC. I lived here from 2011 to 2014, uh, while I was a high school English teacher. And then I went to graduate school and then I moved back uh, about a year and a half ago. And, uh, and I, we moved back, my wife and I, when, um, we had our, our first child and the thing about having a toddler is that, uh, it's wonderful. You're all so tired all the time. And, uh, <laughs> and so I am a lot of the last, you know, 17 months has been, uh, chasing him around and, and trying to write my dissertation. So I haven't actually gotten to a game yet, which I feel terrible about. I was supposed to go to the playoff game, which was such a heartbreaker, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but you know what Rooney did for for DC United was was really extraordinary, and, and mm-hmm. I'm excited for next season. I'm uh, I'm telling myself that like now that we're we're settled, um, I'm going to try and get some season tickets and vote to them and to the to the women's team um, because you know I think the game the the American game is growing, and and I remember I used to turn on an MLS game and then flip back and forth between an MLS game and a Premier League game, and it it looked like, you know, people playing soccer underwater <laughs> as compared to uh, what you were seeing in, in England. But but I think that that gap is narrowing. I think that you know, we have the the game, the speed of the game is, is growing and the, the quality of the players is uh, exponentially higher than I think it was across the board before. And uh, and things are getting more competitive, right? I mean, like Toronto uh, won, the, won the championship last season, didn't even make the playoffs this season. So yeah. I think that there's a parody that's developing um, that's really good for the game and 
I'm excited to, to see it and, and to the extent that I can as a fan be a part of it. I figure I should say this. We're recording this the day before the midterm election day, which is obviously a huge thing, but we're coming out after election day. How often does your soccer world overlap with your other worlds that you're in? Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, you know, I play, I play, I have played in a Sunday league here, um, and not, not as consistently as I would like again, just because, uh, you know, 17 month olds are unpredictable. Um, and, uh, and Sundays often end up being, being something different. And then I also travel a lot, but, uh, you know, I, I all, soccer for me is, is you can't sort of disentangle politics from any facet of, of one's life. I don't think, you know, I think about how so much of what I learned about the world and the politics of the world growing up were because I watched, uh, watched soccer and how I, because I watched soccer particularly in Europe. And, and I thought about what it meant to ha- have all of those people from different nations on the same team. And I thought about, um, the sort of the, the, the project, the post-World War II project of like a pluralistic liberal democracy uh, across, across borders, which is like a really sort of unique thing in, in sort of global history. And, and I, I think about how fragile that is, right? And I think about, you know, even if you look at the World Cup and you look at, you know, the World Cup started, has only, you know, only started as an entity in uh, the early part of the 20th century. I think mm-hmm. it was the first... First World Cup was 1932 in Uruguay. Uh, like that. Yeah, 1930. 1930, and uh, and so like this is still. I mean, the very idea that you would be able to have all nations come together in order to participate in a collective global endeavor is like really a new thing in, over the course of human civilization. And I think that sometimes we we lose that and we forget that and we forget how. Uh, how fragile that is and how it can can become how it doesn't take much to for that to unravel and to begin to look very different. And I think that we have been living in uh, frightening times, to be honest. And I think that, you know, the spread of authoritarianism across the across the country or across the across the world uh, has made people more cognizant of the fact that this is not uh, the, the state of the world as we understand it and the state of the United, the role of the United States within it is not inevitability. And I think that soccer is this sort of fascinating microcosm with which to, um, or through which to sort of engage in an, an analysis of, of what this sort of global order looks like. Um, and the sort of interplay, I mean, there's so much to be said about the interplay of, of race and capitalism and globalization in the way that, you know, in how FIFA operates, in the way that, you know, certain, and what the teams in certain places look like. I mean, I think in the, in the way that certain players, I think about for maybe it was five or 10 years ago, and not to say it doesn't happen now, but like all of the black players in the Eastern European countries or even in Italy who, who talked about having bananas thrown at them or right. having monkey noises made. Um, and, you know, I, part of what my own research and, and scholarship is, is around is um, the sort of uh, manifestations, the different manifestations and iterations of white supremacy and anti-blackness, um, specifically in the United States, but also across the world and what that means and what that looks like. And, you know, I'm, you, in Brazil, there was just like an authoritarian president who was just elected who said horrible things about um, African, the people of that, from the African diaspora and, and indigenous Brazilians and, 
Um, what does that mean for, you know, if you look at the Brazilian national team or, or even the, the players who, you know, become uh, successful in, in the Brazilian league, what does that mean for, for that? You know, so, so I think it, there's always something to be said about the relationship between sports and the sort of broader political world in which uh, we're living. And uh, I, I don't think that they can be stripped away from one another at all. You wrote about the World Cup for The New Yorker. At one point, you had written that it, it was a bummer that the U.S. failed to qualify for that World Cup for a number of reasons, uh, including which, at this time in the world's history, it would have been good for the U.S. to be part of a, a truly global gathering. Um, what was your favorite story from the World Cup this year? Man, I think that the... The story of just the the stoppage time uh, goals and the VA. I mean, I think VAR completely changed the dynamics of of the World Cup um, mm-hmm. in in ways that I I'm, I think are positive. I think I'm a I'm a pro VAR uh, person, uh, except when uh, except I wasn't this weekend because <laughs> Arsenal would have lost if there there was VAR in the Premier League, but. Uh, but other than that, I'm I'm pro VAR because I think it it, it actually I think protects the integrity of the game, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think I don't think it slows it down as much as people thought, and I think that it, it forces folks to to be to play with more integrity, and I think it it pushes folks to know that there's uh, you know even the slight I think there's something to be said for the sort of flexibility of of the game and, and of the sport and letting it flow and go as it will and how certain you know. Uh, certain things that transpire not everything will be will be uh will be caught by a referee but but i do think that if you if something should be a penalty and and or if something was offsides or if something would have been a goal but otherwise wouldn't i think it's not good for the game if if we have the technology to know if if you know this play resulted in a goal or if this play resulted in offsides um to then not use that technology to, to bring, um, to bring that integrity to, to the sport. I, th- I think it's a good thing. So, uh, but it also changed the game in, in huge ways. I think there were so many more penalties and then stoppage time was, was just like, I mean, you, you truly couldn't leave your, your seat on the couch at any point because <laughs> I think every other game, there was a, a stoppage time goal or two. Uh, it was, it was by far the most exciting world cup that I've ever watched. And, uh, and I think there's, you know, the storylines, there's a sort of political storyline of what it meant for it to be in Russia and Russia to make the quarterfinals and, and Putin, even though, you know, Putin very clearly, uh, you know, uh, is, is this sort of bad actor on, on the world <laughs> stage. And, but also, you know, say, I mean, the, the sort of dissonance of it all, but also I think it was, I think it was important because it, it reminded the world and I think reminded me that Russia is so much more than, than Putin, right? Mm-hmm. And that there were like people, there, there were people in the streets. And I think it's, it's a reminder that we have to, to the extent that we can decouple governments from, from citizens. And that's not right. to say there aren't connections, but I think, you know, in the same way that we wouldn't want anyone to look at Trump as singularly representative of the American people, uh, although unfortunately he is representative of, of some many Americans, um, too many. But but I think in the same way that we, you know, I think when we think of Russia, we automatically begin to think of Putin rather than the, like 
millions of, of human beings who are like, who are so interesting and have their own stories and their own histories and their own complex three dimensionalities um, that we sometimes forget. And I think, you know, seeing how much it meant for everyday Russians to have the world uh, come to Russia in for, for those few weeks was, was I think a really important reminder for me not to, to make Russia sort of caricature of itself. Um, despite, uh, despite what Putin does and how much I love the Americans. Yeah. The sh- the show. Yeah, that was one of my big takeaways, too, after spending 40 days in Russia was... Um, it certainly didn't change my opinion about Putin, but I was exposed to a lot of ordinary Russians who got a lot of joy out of that Russian World Cup run. Um, as we wrap up here, uh, I'm curious to know if you think there are any soccer stories out there these days that are undercovered things that we should be talking about more that we should be writing about more what's your sense hmm good question um yeah that's a really good question i i think for me uh and it's not to say that we're undercovering and and this is sort of this is related to your question but i think it's, it's just something that i'm trying to be more thoughtful about myself is the way that we discuss the game and how sometimes we, uh, we unconsciously or, or um, inadvertently kind of erase the women's game and, and, you know, in the U S or, or, or abroad. And I think that over the course of the world cup, even just the language we use, right. I've had, I have made the mistake of talking about the U S national team uh, that, you know, is X, Y, Z or is, and, and I've had people correct me and be like, make sure, you know, it's an important distinction. Like the U.S., because I, I would say like, oh, the U.S. national team is so disappointing and, and uh, you know, U.S. soccer is so terrible. Um, these are moments in, in extreme frustration after we failed to qualify for the World Cup. And I, and I think it's important to remember that, that actually like the women's national team has been the most successful team in the history of the world in, in uh, for, for soccer. And I think that, you know, it just just continuing to remember, think about like who we are including and who we are not including in mm-hmm. our narrative around the game. Um, I think our default can become talking about the men's game. And, uh, and I think that for me, I'm always trying to be careful and thoughtful about making sure that, you know, we are not excluding uh, an entire demographic of, of athletes from, from our conversations when we talk about what, how to move forward, you know, as a country with this game or, or what the different dynamics of the game look like around the world. Um, and, and I think that that's, uh, that's really important. So, so that's not to say that it's undercovered necessarily, but I think it's uh, often discussed, failed to be discussed uh, as thoroughly as it, as it often deserves to be. Yeah. It's something to keep in mind all the time, but also we're in a women's world cup year. Uh, just a few yeah. months to go before that Women's World Cup, which the U.S. will actually be playing in. Um, lastly, I just wanted to ask you, who do you think is the most intriguing soccer player in the world right now? The most intriguing in the world? Um, I got to tell you, I mean, I think uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by Mbappe. I mean, I think just I, to be 19 years, 19 years old. And when I was 19, I was like eating, you know, cheese quesadillas at two in the morning in the <laughs> union and, and, you know, trying to finish my, my theology exam before it would do it three hours later. Uh, but, uh, 
I mean, to be 19 years old and to have already won, to have been arguably the best player, or one of the best players in the World Cup um, as a teenager and to have the, the poise with which he plays and to play alongside at PSG, are, you know, are one of the top three players in the world uh, and to often outshine that, that player. Um, I, I think that he's such a, his career is going to be really fascinating to watch because so much of the narrative that surrounds, you know, our greatest players, whether it be Ronaldo or Messi or Neymar, uh, is tied to whether or not they can, like, garner the ultimate success in the form of winning a World Cup. And I'm so curious what it looks like for us, how we, how he thinks of and how we think of as a sort of, you know, fan and media apparatus to to think about what success looks like for for a kid who has already accomplished the you know, the greatest feat in his sport um, and, and whether that serves as a means of sort of uh, relief and, and this thing that doesn't have to sit on his shoulders for, for the entirety of his career, or if it sort of, you know, conversely becomes something that, uh, you know, if he's winning the league every year for PSG and he already won the World Cup, what is it that he's, that he's striving for, reaching for? I'm always mm-hmm. curious about like motivation in players and um, you know, I would say the Champions League, but now there's this sort of conversation about a European Super League, which I think is a, a terrible and ridiculous. <laughs> like, I, I, I was just if, I, when I think of of the the perils of capitalism and how it like tries to ruin everything that is good. I I'm like you, it it would just ruin the integrity of of European soccer, and I hope it doesn't yeah. come to manifest. But uh, but I think Mbappe is super fascinating, and then in the U.S., I think Timothy Weah is really interesting because, you know, Mm -hmm. because his own history and his father, the president of Liberia and, you know, his story and, uh, um, and the sort of like, uh, pizzazz with which he plays. And, you know, he's like, I I think that he, he's such an interesting person and an interesting young man. And, uh, and I think, you know, is, is part of, again, a crop of, of players who are, who are doing some really interesting, um, stuff in, in, for us soccer, for us men's soccer. Yeah, I interviewed Wea for the first time last month uh, after he had a really tremendous assist on Bobby Wood's goal against Columbia. Uh, Really interesting guy. Clint Smith is on Twitter at Clint Smith the third, Clint Smith I I I. You can read his stuff on a lot of different topics, and you should. But if you want to read his soccer stuff, just Google Clint Smith soccer and lots of stuff will show up. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Clint Smith, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV, Amazon Channels, and Fubo TV. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. 
you get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.